Welcome to The Futurist with your hosts, Ben Rohde and Alex Lightman. Each week, we feature a specific aspect of our collective future with action steps you can take to make your own future better and brighter. Our guest experts are top futurists in their field who will remind you that anything is possible. Give us 90 minutes and we'll give you the future. Alex, you there? Yes. Hi, it's Alex and Ben, and we have our show today uh, with Lynette uh, Kushma, who is the co-founder of Natural Machines. Natural Machines is a company that makes the Fudini. It's a the first 3D food printer, and Lynette is a, a personal friend of mine, and I actually have a Fudini uh, in my home right now that I have shown to Noah Bushnell, the founder of Atari, and uh, Chuck E. Cheese, and other people, we we actually made a chocolate mousse face of Nolan, among other things. And <laughs> Lynette is a, a wonderful person. She, uh, um, I'll, I'll, uh, Ben, can you um, can you give her her background? Yeah, yeah, I'll read her professional bio. Uh, but I'm excited that you. Wait, I figured at some point why you have one in your home and she doesn't have one in her home. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> CNN has named Lynette one of only seven tech superheroes to watch, and Fortune says she wants to sell the 21st century's version of the microwave, as in a device that will revolutionize every kitchen, outpacing the functionality of the last kitchen revolution, the microwave, obviously. She believes that people would be healthier if everybody eats freshly made wholesome meals and snacks but it needs to be easier and faster for everyone to create healthy foods made with fresh ingredients. So she's helping to build a new generation kitchen appliance. This sounds awesome. I'm so excited to hear about it. So uh, Lynette, um, what was the original inspiration and is it true that there's a science fictional inspiration behind the creation of the Fudini? Well, you know, hello, first of all, so no, no, no. what people do think about is Star Trek and the Replicator. So that did have a bit of an influential impact on why we created Foodini in the first place. But there is a more grounded, down-to-earth reason why we actually created Foodini. So what we did is we didn't try to take a 3D printer and do something new and cool with it, like print food. We actually... We saw an issue with food industry, and 3D food printing actually was one of the best technologies to help solve that. So that's where we kind of started the whole uh, Foodini concept. Um, is it true that in your first trade shows you had a large cutout of Commander Worf, one of the characters in Star Trek, the, the Klingon, in your booth? I would, have to, I would have to say that's not true. <laughs> oh, it's not true? It was not true. No, I'm afraid. Oh, not. so not you were true. joking with me when you guys said that. <laughs> no, what actually happened is it's probably in one of our early decks when we started describing what Natural Machines was. My co-founder did pull in some photos of Star Trek, so that's probably where you saw that. But it was never of a cutout into a trade show booth. <laughs> I see. So, um, so let's start. Let's start with the big picture of food. What do you think about what people eat and how they prepare it? And how, what can we do better? How can we do that better? Well, you know, I think you see some big macro trends going on in the world right now where people are becoming much more aware of what foods they're eating. There's trends towards organic and farm-to-fork traceability and just really understanding what we're eating. So you'll even see from food manufacturers where they're trying to go into a, a clean labeling, if you will. So rather than reading a concoction of chemical-sounding ingredients, you might be able to actually pick up a food package that has ingredients that you understand, and it's not a chemical concoction. So cool. you know, it, it, it's, it sounds cool, but it's not really – it's just still a bit of a – because what ends up happening is a lot of those clean labels are actually just nice-sounding names for yet more chemicals. <laughs> you still really like, like to understand natural sweeteners. Yeah, exactly. Or rosemary extract is actually still really a chemical, not necessarily rosemary extract. So you still have to kind of really understand what's in your food labels, which is hard. Given uh, you know, you look at any food label, 
And they are very difficult to understand. But even if you are lucky enough to see a food label and understand what every ingredient is in that package, what you don't know is how much of that ingredient is in there. So with any type of packaged food, we tend to eat way too much things like salt, oil, and sugar because they also act as shelf stabilizers to keep that food on the shelf for a long time. So I think people are becoming more aware of what they're eating and just trying to become more responsible about what they're eating. Absolutely. What do you, you what do you personally eat, and what do you feed your family? Uh, what do you think that people should be eating, and how does that influence your what you your inspiration for a company? I mean, you call it natural machines. It's a, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Well, to a bit, but if you think about a 3D food printer as a kitchen appliance, like a blender or a food processor or any other kitchen appliance you have, then you know, it's not too much of an oxymoron because the reason why we call it natural machines is because when people think about 3D food printing, they may think, uh, you know, we're forcing people to buy pre-filled food capsules, but that's not the case. We actually ship with empty stainless steel food capsules, so you can use your own real fresh ingredients. So it is natural food. What we're printing is real food. It's just 3D printed. So I think with food, it's hard because food is emotional. You know, it's not a science or it could be a science where people think one thing is good for you and another thing is bad, but you know, we're human, we're emotional, and food is tied into a lot of our emotional experiences. So it's hard to say what a right answer is for the entire planet to eat. Me personally, I'm what I call a whole food plant strong, which is probably more commonly known as a vegan. <laughs> I don't like to call myself a vegan, mainly because you can be a vegan and eat really bad. So in theory, I can <laughs> drink soda and eat potato chips all day, and I'm a vegan. But that's not oh, exactly a whole food. Whole? Did you say whole plant based? Whole whole foods plant strong. So basically eating whole food plant strong. Okay, I love it. Wow, this makes. My problem with veganism is uh, actually I used to have a vegan boarding school, and I used to be very very thin. And being a vegan for 15 years ended up I I put on a lot of weight because I was eating so many carbs. Where do where do carbs fit within your whole scheme of things? I'm actually trying to eliminate all processed carbs. So that means all breads are gone. Um, the, so things that are just kind of like empty calories and fillers. So I do eat a bit of plant-strong carbs, if you will. So legumes or beans or oh, yeah. certain types of grains, but more on the seed side versus, you know, I'm trying to eliminate corn and wheat and those types of grains. So for me, I'm really trying to stick to really – proper whole foods, which is a bit difficult because I don't live by myself. I have a family and they don't all abide by that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's temptation around, but I find if I, you know, if I eat the right things and I'm filled up, then it's fine. But in all honesty, I play with my diet, you know, a, a bit. I give things a long enough chance to try and settle in and work. But um, I used to be the whole food plant strong person that did eat a lot of grains and wheats and breads. And, but I found that I was always still tired or always, kind of hungry, never really full, no matter what I ate. So I started switching to eliminating all those processed carbohydrates and grains, such as breads and pastas and getting rid of those and just really focusing hardcore on a lot of vegetables, a little bit of fruit, uh, a lot of um, just fresh natural things. So with, with regards to the foodini, I'm so curious. So I, I was watching, I watched some videos about it and it talked about printing pastas and stuff like that. So is it actual pasta or are you just, is it like faux pasta where you're making pasta out of different ingredients that are healthy, but it, it kind of resembles pasta? You know, it can be either one because the fact of the matter is, is that we ship with these empty stainless steel food capsules and you put in your own food. So what doesn't happen, I think the best thing to explain is what we don't do. So if you're familiar with the Nespresso machines that are in Europe or the K-Cup coffee machines and that are in the States, you know, those are the coffee machines that kind of force you to buy their product, right? So it's the razor, yeah. razor blade concept, sell the machine, and then they make a ton of money while you buy their coffee capsules. We yeah. don't do that. So we're selling the machine. But we ship with empty stainless steel food capsules, and you actually put in your own food. So if you wanted to make real pasta, proper pasta, you can do that. If you want to make a grain-free type of pasta made out of uh, whatever else, vegetables or whatever, you can do that. So it's really about what you want to make and put into those capsules. 
That's so cool. So one of my questions, and actually I want to I want to ask Alex this one first because you've tried it. So one of my questions that, that I wrote on um, on on the the uh, description of the show is so in my opinion the most important ingredient in food is love, right? Like when when somebody just pour like puts all their attention in and pours their love into it, it just tastes better. Like we have a we have a nanny that. She can, this woman can literally take two hours to make like macaroni and cheese, right? I have no idea what takes so long. I have no, but, but it tastes so good. And um, we actually had her, we had Jim Carrey's chef over for dinner one time and we had, we had our nanny cook for him and he was like, he wanted to hire her. Right. And it's really funny. And so how, so Alex, how does it taste? Well, it depends on what ingredients you make out of it. I, I don't know. I have. To, I just rolled my eyes over the phone at that because um, not everybody lives in Costa Rica and has, you know, three servants working for them. I mean, most people don't have that. So making a comparison of that, the idea of automation is to free up human labor so that humans don't have to do all this work and people don't have to pay people to do this work. Um and as far as the ingredient being love, I roll my eyes at that too because um, I, if I'm going to have a green, you know, a green pepper or an orange, I don't actually need anyone to be loving, handing it to me with love or something. I can just eat it, and the nutrition will be the same. So I'm calling bullshit on both of those two things. But well, I, 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 I heard the same thing because I wanted to see about getting uh, investment for natural machines. And a person that I, I know who's a billionaire, who's a person who's extremely close to me, and his daughter and I were having dinner in a Korean restaurant, and they lectured me for about 20 minutes about how these, the people that they know who made the best pita bread, uh, they, they were humans, and the machine couldn't do it. And finally, what they, they came to in their, in their whole discussion was that it was her breath, and she was breathing on the bread. And I looked at them with abject horror because I know all about the microbiome and, you know, Lyme disease and um, cytomegalovirus. And I'm just thinking, yeah, just what I want, someone breathing on my food. So, uh, you know, I guess um, I think that, that the idea that you can go and and I'm not sure really what the question is, but I'll just dive ahead and say that I love the idea living in Southern California where I see these farmers markets with all this beautiful food that's supposedly organic laid out for me every Wednesday and every Saturday, one block from where I live. And the idea that I could just have that food uh, come to me and in, in basically within an hour to four hours of being picked and I could have it prepared for me in beautiful, artful arrangements on my table – uh, I love that. Uh, you asked a question about how it tastes. Well, it depends yeah. on what you make it with. But what I, but what, and I've had this. I've given Lynette a hard time, and I guess I'll do it again. Um, is she wants me to make things out of Nutella and instant mashed potatoes, and you know these are carby carbs. So what I would like to to have is better recipes for for using healthy, wonderful food to make the, the most of, of the potential of this machine and, and also have the company live up to its name. Can I respond to that, Alex? <laughs> sure. So a few, a few things. First of all, uh, the, the whole Nutella and mashed potato thing, that was just to make Alex's life easy to do demos for us remotely. <laughs> Again, you can put whatever food you want in there. And Ben, getting back to your love comment, I see where you're coming from with that. And the response to that is that if any of your cooks or you know, anybody who cooks in general uses any kitchen appliance, whether it's a stove, an oven, maybe they use a food processor to make doughs, maybe they use a blender to make sauces, yeah. is that food that they make any less love? Oh, man, you're good. You're good. Good answers. <laughs> good answers. <laughs> It's the same thing. It's a kitchen appliance. So we're not looking to replace people. I think when people look at 3D printing or 3D food printing, they're saying, oh, you want to eliminate chefs in the future, don't you? And the answer to that is no. Because, again, if you're looking at it from a kitchen appliance standpoint, it's a kitchen appliance to help you do certain things in the kitchen. So that love can still be there. It doesn't go away. Wow, you're good at this. It's like you've been interviewed before. (laughs) 
just, just a handful of times. So, Lynette, tell, tell, um, tell Ben and our listeners um, who you've talked to before about the Fudini, what, what kind of publicity you've gotten and, and why you've gotten the publicity. Like what kind of things do people say about it? Well, you know what? When people hear about 3D food printing, we have people that respond anywhere from loving it to hating it and everything in between. And the reason why we would have any haters is because it's something they don't understand. So when you first hear about 3D food printing, it, admittedly, it could sound negative. You know, it could sound that it's processed food or it's, you're forced to buy you know, pre-filled food capsules or it's a pasty type of food with gelling agents. That's totally not what we do with food. We're printing real fresh food. But I understand the concern. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's so much interest in 3D food printing with how we're doing it with uh, fresh foods and real ingredients that we've been interviewed by a whole bunch of tier one publications like BBC, CNN, NBC, a bunch of publications uh, talk to us multiple times because there's so many different directions to take the story of 3D printing plus the Internet of Things. So... Uh, there's a huge, and once again, you have that emotional tie with food. So you're tying emotions to food that's connected to machines. There's a bunch of different ways to take it. But I think we're pretty proud of the fact that if we do have any haters that uh, disagree with what we do, we can pretty much neutralize them in two communications or less, whether it's over Facebook or Twitter or a conversation in person. It's because they don't understand what we're doing. But once they understand yeah. that it's fresh food, and once they understand the analogy that, look, if you eat anything that's made from a food manufacturer, you're practically already eating 3D printed food already. Because what a food <laughs> manufacturer does is they take food, they push it through machines, they shape it, and they form it. We've taken that exact same concept and we shrunk it down to a design kitchen appliance that sits on your kitchen table or your kitchen counter. Oh, but so the big cool. difference is that you control all the ingredients going into that food, not a food manufacturer. And Jesus. once they get that, they get it. Cool. So I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, I, so I was watching some videos about, about Fudini on YouTube, and there was this one guy that clearly didn't get it and said it, it was crazy, crazy stuff. And then I was looking, I mean, it, it wasn't like, I, I watched your video, and, and then I knew a little bit about Fudini, and then I watched his video, and I was like, he clearly did not watch your video, right? And so then I watched all the comments on his, on his um, post, and it was a lot of just people that didn't understand it. And so this is why we like to have futurists on this show is because when you're creating the future, people don't understand it. When you're number one, you know, in, in this area, when you're at the, the, when you're the tip of the spear, when you're at the head of the bell curve, pe nobody else understands it. This is why you're at the front of the bell curve, right? And so naturally you're going to Wait, wait, what does this mean, the head of the bell curve? I love this idea, but I've, I, what are you talking about? Okay, so in 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 any field, in any field, there's there's a bell curve of people that that get it or use it, right? So let's let's talk about um, I'll just let's just use consciousness, right? And and so there's a bell curve where at the top of the bell curve is like the mean. It's like people that uh, people that 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 understand whatever's going on that's normal, right? It's, it's like what everybody knows. It's like, yeah, that's common knowledge. That's the mean. There, you know, there are people at the back of the bell curve that don't even know that much. And then there are people that are at the front of the bell curve, like the very front of the bell curve that are feeding the others the information, right? So people like Jen and I, we're creating the future of consciousness and of transformation and, and stuff like that. So we are like the one and two, you know, on the front of the bell curve, and so a lot of people have no idea what we're saying at first, right? And so I feel like it's the same thing with the Houdini. It's at the front of the bell curve where, like, it, it was a concept, and I want to hear about where this came from, Lynette. It was a concept that popped into Lynette and her co-founder's head. I don't know who came up with it first, or, um, but it was a concept in their brain. It was a thought, right? And then they, um, they created it, and now the people at the, the – front of the bell curve or the back of the bell curve or even the top of the bell curve are they need information from Lynette right to understand it does that make sense and then once so like the microwave is at the top of the bell curve the microwaves at the top people get it people use it it's normal everyone gets it at some point a year five years ten years in the future a 3d printer is going to be at the top of the bell curve everyone gets it duh makes sense to me right but for now it's not making sense to them. So 
Does that does that make sense, everybody? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, well, it does make sense. I think we also have a bit of an issue with just uh, in general where people read the headlines and not the story. So people kind of jump to conclusions without investigating what's actually happening. We find that a lot. So they'll hear about 3D food printing, just jump to the conclusion that it's processed food is bad for you and start giving opinions. But once they actually understand those two main concepts about fresh food and that they're practically eating 3D printed food, then it starts to turn. Lynette, are we talking about, as in so many other places, um, eliminating the middleman? I mean, if you let me riff on it for just a second, once upon a time, some of the biggest corporations on Wall Street, the hottest corporations on Wall Street were time-sharing. So there were companies like Timeshare and others that would rent you time on a computer. Now we have a computer in our home. We have uh, pretty much everybody has it in a home. And once upon a time you had to use telephone companies and have the central switching, and now you can actually have Skype and you you don't even need to have uh, phone company service. Are we doing the same thing and disintermediating the guys in the middle between the farmers and us so that we can go and grow our own food and directly take control of it? I think we are because the premise of all 3D printing, whether it's printing food or printing other materials, is that you become the manufacturer, you're the maker, you can customize things for yourself. So basically that's our concept. We're taking that food manufacturing facility and we shrunk it down to a kitchen appliance where you actually become the manufacturer, you are the maker, so that we don't have to have that centralized distribution anymore. I love it. So uh, how do you how are people using it now? I know that you have it in restaurants and chefs. So how many foodinis are out there? What are they being used for? And what are the surprising discoveries that you've made? And what does that tell us about the future of how we're going to make food? What's the future of restaurants? So where we are with things is we've been doing this since 2012, so we're about four years into it, and we are in manufacturing right now. We're keeping it to uh, early access users, so it's the early part of the market. That's professional kitchen users, so which is a lot of Michelin-starred chefs and restaurants and uh, schools, anything that's not a home kitchen user. Basically, we have um, a lot of interest from a lot of different groups. So basically, they're interested in it for two main reasons. One is because it allows them to do food shaping and forms that just are not possible by hand. So it's about presentation. So people might not think presentation is important, but it is. You know, as soon as we sit down and we eat food, we're looking at it first. So we're visually judging it before we even taste it. So food presentation is very important. So a lot of these Michelin-starred chefs and high-end chefs are looking to do different types of food presentations. The second concept is more of an automation concept. So imagine you're a Michelin-starred chef and you have to create breadsticks in the shape of tree branches for a dish that you created and there's 60 people coming to your restaurant tonight. Traditionally, you would have to do that by hand, but you can actually do a lot of that with a 3D food printer. So you automate that task while you can go off and do other things. So it's really about doing things you can't do by hand, customization, and automation. That's genius. And we're, we're, uh, do you see this as being something that they can use on – we're going to get to uh, space, uh, but I want to build up to it. So is this the kind um, – <laughs> have you ever – have either of you ever been on a submarine? Uh, uh, no. You know, when not I was a real one. Just when the, yeah, the ones that go 10 feet or 20 feet below the water, that's about it. <laughs> okay. My, so I've actually been on real, um, a real military sub, and the kitchen is ridiculously small. And I, so one of the things is that, uh, and you have to make, you know, food for all these people who really think a lot about their food because they just don't have that much to think about. Uh, <laughs> what do you think that this is the kind of thing that can go on submarines or aircraft? Absolutely. And here's why. So the version we have out today, we're missing one key piece of functionality that will get us to that point, which will also get us into the mass market of home kitchen users. And that's the functionality to cook. So we know with all of our market research, people want a, a device that can also cook. So the device we have out today in the market that we're selling, you can heat the individual food capsules. So that's good for doing things like keeping chocolate at a good melting point to print or, you know, printing your famous warm mashed potatoes, if you will. But if you, were to cook a, if you were to print a raw meat in today's device that we're selling, you would have to take that out and cook it in an oven or some other means. 
So what we are doing is we are already developing the next generation, which does have the capability to cook. It's real technology. We're actually to the point where we're doing case testings and making sure that if we cook meat, all the bacteria that needs to be killed is actually killed. Once you do that, you start seeing a mashup of kitchen appliance functionality. So our big vision in the future is that in 10 to 15 years, the 3D food printer will become a common kitchen appliance like an oven or a microwave is today. So, but in the future, will you need to have a stovetop, an oven, a microwave, a 3D food printer that cooks? No, I don't think you will. You're going to start seeing that functionality mash up so you can actually do more things with less appliances. And that's where Foodini is heading. So the fact that you can fit this technology into a box, then yes, you will be able to see it on aircraft and submarines and smaller constrained spaces, and it will do quite a bit of things. And so how do you many, think that – do you think that – oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ben. I was just going to ask, how many people can it cook for? So, so I saw the containers. They look kind of small. So if, if Alex is talking about, like, cooking on a submarine or cooking on an airplane or even cooking at a restaurant, like, it's, it, tell me you're going to need, like, a, a more industrial version that can handle cooking for 50 people, 100 people, something like that, Right. Well, not necessarily. I mean, the capsules look, they're deceptively, they look deceptively small, but they're really not. So each capsule holds about 100 mil in European measurements. It's about three and a half ounces, more or less, in U.S. measurements. So we have room for up to five food capsules and food eating that automatically exchange as they're needed. So that's a total of 500 mil or about 17 ounces, more or less. So that's that's quite a bit of food. So it's hard to say what the serving size is per uh, fully loaded capsules, if you will, because it all depends on what you're printing, the size, the shape, and the height. So it's a bit difficult to generalize. But, you know, in places that are doing higher volumes of food, the simple solution for that today is to have more than one food in the kitchen. And that's not uncommon with other kitchen appliances, right? So if you have a thermomix or an advanced food processor, you'll see kitchens that do high volume that have more than one running. Exactly, exactly. So that's the short-term solution. Now, when we get to the point of the future, you know, we say we're going to have a 3D food printer in every kitchen. Now, is that going to be the same exact footprint 3D printer? No, probably not. So I'll use the microwave analogy not as, just as in terms of a size and a price comparison. So today you have microwaves that have different sizes, different shapes, and different functionality and different price points. So them, some of them are very basic and just kind of turn on and off. Others, you can do grilling functionality and steaming and advanced features and everything in between. So you're going to see the same thing with 3D food printers on Fuji in the future. Well, you'll have different functionalities and different price points and different kinds of food levels in terms of volume that you can actually do. That's so cool. So I did a little bit of research. Oh, sorry, Alex, did you, you, did you have a question that was still on that topic? Well, I, I, I can save it for later. Please go to continue. Okay, okay. So I, I, I was researching the other food printers that are available, and, and nothing prints, so yours prints sweet and savory food. I'm getting an echo. Correct. I think it's from your phone, Lynette. Um, so... So sweet and savory, and I, I saw some other ones that printed really beautiful, like candies, but they all, you know, it's all candy. It's candy, right? You can print some really cool candy shapes, uh, but it's not, not food, right? L- Lynette, so, while Ben yeah. is talking, you might need to mute your phone. Yeah, okay. Thanks. But I'm done, so it's all you, Lynette. <laughs> so I'll unmute now. <laughs> Yeah, basically, uh, a lot of the other food printers, and let's face it, there's not that many on the market today, but it's growing, you know, a lot, uh, the amount of food printers coming out. So there is nobody else that does what we're doing, because quite frankly, it's difficult. It's not easy to do what we're doing. So one of the key features as to what we do is we know that nobody's going to wait hours for dinner, right? So it, it can't be a slow process. So we designed everything with that in mind as well. So we actually have variable printing speeds. There's not one print speed. So the print speed is actually determined by the food you're printing. So as an example, if you're printing a pizza, for example, the pizza dough is going to print uh, slower in the beginning because it needs to stick to whatever surface you're printing to, and then it can slowly get faster. But it's still going to be a slower printing speed than, let's say, a tomato sauce, which can go much faster than the dough. So that's going to be variable print speeds. 
But we're also, we're, we're not just a 3D food printer. We're an Internet of Things kitchen appliance as well, which means we have a bunch of sensors on the capsules and the device itself. So what we're looking to do in the future is actually automate as much as uh, that process as possible and optimize print speeds for each ingredient you're printing so that you can always get the fastest print possible without having to have human intervention of actually telling the machine what kind of print speeds you require. Genius. Cool. Um, so, so my, my question was going to be, and this is along the lines of, if we see these in submarines and we see these on airplanes and we start to see these on yachts and on cruise ships, you know, where you can prepare your own food near your cabin so you have greater privacy. We even see them in high-end hotels as part of the deal. Will we start to see this on spaceships? Like, when will we have a 3D food printer in space? When will it be on the space station? Will it be on uh, the Mars colonial transport that Elon Musk announced in Guadalajara a couple weeks ago? Where do you see it going? And do you see the ability to prepare food, enabling us to do more exploration and to uh, have greater ability to have more people go exotic places where they don't have restaurants or kitchens, you know, for normal people. So I think we're definitely going to see 3D food printers in space and for transport for space and on space stations and what have you. Uh, a couple of years ago, NASA even announced that they were doing a grant with some people to develop a 3D food printer for space. So that was in development. We do have people talking to us about it. I can't say who exactly, <laughs> but we do have people talking to us about it. But I think you definitely will have that because there's a lot of issues in space, just in terms of the amount of fuel and the cost it takes to get actual product up there. But also because when you talk about 3D food printing and the Internet of Things and customization, which is what 3D printing is about, is you can actually customize and optimize nutrients for the astronauts, for people in space, so that if a certain astronaut needs, let's say, an extra boost of iron or vitamin K or whatever vitamin or mineral, you can actually 3D print that food to be customized for that particular person for that moment. And since we're also an Internet of Things device, I can actually have that data come back down to Earth so people can monitor that person. So it becomes a different game rather than just using food as substance. And plus, you know, astronauts get bored of space food. It's not exactly exciting like what we have here on Earth. So to make it more exciting, more nutritious, more customized, people can print what they want to eat and nothing more. Right now you have space rations that once they're open, they're open. You can't really save them. So imagine you're in space. You can actually just customize the exact amount of food with the exact nutrition that you need for that particular time and make it interesting and tasty and visually appealing. I think that's where it's going to go into, into the space area. Wow. Um, and what, um, what do you see the perfect meal to make with 3D food printing as? So you have a foodini. You can make a meal for me, for Ben, for, for all the people making his food to show them how it works. What, what, what do you make us for dinner using a foodini? Nutella and yeah, mashed potatoes. <laughs> Alex always gives me a hard time for that. It's just I'm trying to make his life easy to do demos. <laughs> okay, admittedly, Ben, a little side story. We use mashed potatoes a lot in the office because we don't have a full-blown-out kitchen yet, so it's just something easy to prepare and doesn't make a huge mess. Okay, that story's over. <laughs> I love mashed potatoes. Basically, I think it's a really hard question to answer because the fact of the matter is, is that currently we have 91 countries, people from 91 countries that have contacted us about Foodini. So if you look at those 91 wow. countries, that's cool. a lot of different food. Thank you. <laughs> that's a lot of different food preferences, a lot of, you know, family recipes that get passed down through the generations, a lot of different local foods that are available. So it's hard to say what the perfect recipe or the perfect dinner is to print. So I think it's really, again, food is a personal choice, and we would always like people to use their local food sources when possible. So that's going to vary from where you're coming from. That's so cool. But, but so what, do you wanna, what, do you, what would you like to make if you were going to eat it yourself? What kind of food, what kind of perfect dinner would you like? Uh, you know what? Well, I'm all about the fresh foods and the fresh grains and what have you. Great. And, you know, okay, so I'll tell you a story of what I actually did print when I had foodini in my house uh, for the few times I've had it. So Before I Alex stole it from you? 
Yeah, I know. He came over and just ripped it out of my hands and took it on an airplane. <laughs> actually, it was actually it was part of a of a very big budget famous uh, director's Hollywood movie, um, and I can't say anything more than that. Maybe Lynette can. What? And so I I got it from a very famous director but, uh, who had it before me. So it's, a awesome it's kind of a it. it's the kind of thing that you'd want to put into a uh, a Hard Rock Cafe or a Planet Hollywood if those are still uh, around. It's a celebrity 3D food printer. It is. So I'm not even joking. You got the Hollywood, ver- you got the Hollywood version, Alex. <laughs> Alex, so how, how often? I, wait, I, I have to know first. How, how often do you use it, Alex? Oh, I just do it when I have uh, friends who want who are famous uh, who want to see what a 3D food printer is. Are you trying not to put very many miles on it so you can sell it to Hard Rock Cafe or what? Well, I, I mean, it's not here for my as a toy. It's it's actually, you know, it's a it's. I feel very privileged to have one of the few that are around. So, uh, but yeah, I do show it off. I get, I get some bragging rights as a futurist by having a, yeah, you know, yeah, I have a 3D food printer at home. It's like people's <laughs> jaws drop and they go, what? That's pretty and actually, cool. Alex, yeah. Alex, very good care of it for us because we have special plans for it. So unfortunately, it's not going to stay there very long. But uh, he's taking very good care of it for us. Oh, that's cool. I, I want you to know, Lynette, I, um, I had a video chat with Alex a couple of days ago, and he was eating a hot dog and cereal. So he, he, was, he, he definitely doesn't use it very much. I'm sorry, but it's false to say I'm eating cereal. I don't eat cereal. Oh, I don't, I don't eat carbs. Was, I'm on a ketogenic diet, so don't, don't make stuff up like that. I was okay, going to say that. I saw him slurping something out of the bowl. But I'm, I'm not a but I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian anymore. So yeah, I was eating a hot dog with mustard and relish, but no bun. That's true. Yeah. No, I gave him a hard time about it too. He said it's okay for his diet, though. So, oh, so Alex, getting back to your question from before, so you know I have two younger kids, eight and six years old, and you know they're fussy as kids can be at certain times. But I'm the whole food plant strong mother who would like to pass on my beliefs to my kids. So food eating for me is like a, a huge thing for them because it is about presentation for kids is super important. So they're constantly gauging what they're eating based on what it looks like. So one of my stories, Alex, I know you already know, but I love telling this story all the time because it really resonates to a lot of people with kids is that now, I made a spinach quiche one day that was, you know, a spinach quiche is like a, a green pie, if you will. And I even tried to sell it to my kids as a green pie to try it. It, was a spinach quiche. it didn't work. <laughs> I tried, though. I had to try. So I convinced them to try a bite of it after, you know, they resist it. And they tried it and they said they didn't like it. Okay, all's fair. Not everybody likes every type of food. But then what I did is um, I got inspiration from a toy dinosaur my son has. And about a week later... I printed the same exact spinach quiche recipe in the shape of dinosaurs and the same recipe. And my kids could not get enough of them. So they want it more and more and more. And it was wow. the same thing. The food presentation a, a, friend, is a, a friend of mine calls that in business. He actually uh, lo- uh, told me a story. This is my, my billionaire friend. He says, Alex, the, the secret of life is that you have to tell people things that they need to hear, but they don't want to hear but to say it in a way that they will want to hear it from you. And so I think that there's a food analogy here that you want to get people to eat what they need to eat uh, that they don't want to eat because it's nutritious, but to present it in such an entertaining way that they smile and they see the love and they feel the, feel the love through the creativity and the uniqueness of the presentation. That's what I think. Like, and that's, like kids, that's where the love comes astronauts. in. What's that? Like kids and astronauts. Well, like everybody. I mean, the, 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 the basic point I'm trying to make is that if, if you can put creativity into it, people can interpret that as love and, 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 oh, wow, somebody's not just going through the motions here like a robot, but they're actually, uh, they're actually putting some new thought in a new way into this. So they're thinking about me, so therefore they love me. And, you know, Alex, I'll take it a step further. So my kids love that recipe so much that, you know, we made it a few times. So the next time I made it, the first time I surprised my kids with the dinosaurs, I didn't tell them I was printing it or anything. Second time, I brought them into the kitchen. So one of the criticisms we'll get from people who don't quite understand Foodini and what we're doing with 3D food printing is they say, you know, in two generations, we will be like Star Trek Replicator. Nobody will know how to cook because they'll just walk into a kitchen and press a button and, you know, dinner will be served. 
So okay. actually, when you look at what we're doing with the fresh food capsules, that's actually not the case. So we're actually engaging people more in what they're eating. So rather than buying a box of frozen chicken nuggets or frozen spinach quiche or whatever you have, I actually had my kids in the kitchen and they learned what was in it. They learned what was in the spinach filling, all the fresh spices and the fresh spinach and how to make it. They learned how to make the dough. They got to pick their dinosaurs. So they got to do some creative arts and crafts, if you will, as, as well. So we made dinosaurs and butterflies that day. So it really got them engaged in the actual cooking process, which is kind of a, a bigger macro trend as well, where people are concerned about getting away and not knowing how to boil an egg or make pasta or anything. It's getting people back into the kitchens and learning about what they're actually eating. Oh, that's so I, cool. I love it. The original, the original idea, the reason I showed it to Nolan was because uh, I thought that Chuck E. Cheese um, should have a program for kids. Like you go for your birthday and you, you celebrate. That's a, often what kids do. They go and they celebrate at Chuck E. Cheese. And the idea is that you would have a 3D food printer and the kids could design their, their own pizza and then make it there. You know, this would be the next version that can do cooking. But I think the idea that kids can do their own cooking at their own birthday parties and make their own birthday cakes out of, out of healthy ingredients, uh, though I, I, I admit that I'm talking uh, speculatively here. Uh, I, I, we may be a show on the futures, but I don't know anybody who has a healthy recipe for birthday cake. But I, I love the idea of kids being creative. Or do you have any other examples of kids being creative with 3D food printing and being able to yeah. be more engaged in the process? I think well, bake sales I mean, would be cool, like for schools, fundraising, right? Have a, have a freaking 3D printer and kids will buy cool stuff every day. Yeah, and the thing is, is, like, why does it have to be sweet? Why does it have to be sugary and cakes and what have you? It doesn't have to be. Like, these spinach dinosaurs were savory. So I think when, you know, again, it, it doesn't have to be that sweet only proposition. So, Alex, getting back to your Chuck E. Cheese comment, there is a new trend going around. I haven't experienced it myself with my daughter, but apparently there's a trend with for birthday parties. You go to these cupcake-making places or these cake-making places, and you make your own cakes. You make your own cupcakes. So it's kind of like a cooking class, but it's cupcakes. But why can't we switch that and make something savory, make something healthy, even maybe do something on a farm so you can actually do it from the whole experience of picking ingredients and then actually making them and printing them and eating them. Well, so we, uh, Lynette, um, one of the things that Ben and I do in each show is we give our listeners three things that they can do right away. So how about one of these that we come up with now is a healthy substitute for cupcakes or birthday cakes? Um, what would you What would you suggest? You know, anything savory, even my kids have made crackers before, so you can make healthy versions of crackers that can be either from wheat or non-wheat uh, ingredients or what have you, but it doesn't have to be something that contains sugar all the time, or you can customize things. I think I heard on one of your radio shows in the past that uh, somebody was talking about using cinnamon as a substitute for sugar, right? So yeah. rather than buying those packaged or pre-made cakes and cookies, why don't you have people make their own cookie dough using cinnamon instead of sugar and then you can vary the levels even per child if you wanted to or even vary the design so one of the things quite and, a bit of, and how, I mean how fun of a birthday party would that be we're going to make our own awesome treats custom exactly exactly and that's one of the reasons why a lot of schools are actually interested in food and 3D food printing because schools are introducing 3D printing to kids but a lot of it's with plastic printers and you can make a one inch design ornament or what have you and it takes seven hours to print it no kid is going to sit there it's like watching paint dry right it's exciting for about the first five minutes but they're not going to sit there and watch the print happen but when you talk about food it's a lot faster so i can do things like individual raviolis in two minutes a personal sized pizza in five minutes we can do crackers in 20 seconds so you get kids back into you know a getting to home ec type of classes where they're learning about food they're learning about technology a bit because it is 3D printing, even though we're keeping it a very simple kitchen appliance so you don't even need to know it's a, a 3D printer. And you get instant gratification. So what you're actually designing in from the food and everything, you can do that all in one class period. Wow. You know how much people love instant gratification. Cool. So, so do, you have, do you have two more things that, that people can do? So make awesome uh, – I, I mean, I, you don't need a 3D food printer yet – to start making awesome treats for, and kids love treats and kids love making treats when it's, you know, when you make it fun. So what else, what else, how else can people make food fun and make nutrition fun? 
But you know, what? if if you keep on a kid track for just a minute, I think you know people have to have a bit more patience. And admittedly, sometimes I lack in this. <laughs> you know, you come home from work and you want to make a fresh meal, but you want to make it fast. So if your kids ask to help you, you're like, oh, it's going to slow me down by 20 minutes. But you know what? Sometimes <laughs> you just have to eat dinner 20 minutes later. You know, so mm-hmm. get them in the kitchen, allow them to make a mess. You know, and ex- my daughter calls it experiments. She'll just take ingredients sometimes and throw them all into a bowl and stick it in the oven. And granted, most of it isn't edible. But the fact is, is that she's trying to experiment, you know, and become more familiar. I, I think with that's. I think I'd call that the second suggestion: is to have your kids be yeah. more in the kitchen and call it experimenting instead of cooking. Yeah. That's brilliant. Uh, I um, organized the first international conference on the rise of the citizen scientist. And you just told me something that no, that we had 60 speakers and nobody said, which is how do you introduce the concept of being a citizen scientist at an earlier age? And the answer is you let them do experiments in the kitchen. Bravo. Well done. Thank what's you. Your, what's your third suggestion? Well, you know, I think it's just it's going along the macro trends of where we need to become more aware of what we're eating. You know, I know we're a time-pressed society. I'm time-pressed just as much as the next person. But to just really be engaged and try to decipher things that we're eating and stay away from the stuff we don't understand. You know, if a food manufacturer can't make it clear what's actually in a box or make it easy to understand or not be a chemical concoction list of ingredients, to stay away from those things. So I know there's the big convenience factor for it, but that's also part of the reason why we are developing food eating so that in the future to make these things fresh, it's a convenience factor as well. And uh, Lynette, um, one of the things that we have an, we have an extraordinarily uh, unique opportunity here. You and Ben are both born and raised in America, and you have both chosen to leave the United States and live in other countries. Coincidentally, uh, both Spanish-speaking countries. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps that you could you could share. Do you think that you are? I had I, like I find you both to be extraordinarily interesting, fun ethical people. Do you think that someone has to leave the United States to be an American who's fully ethical and living in living their values? Uh, I think if you have the opportunity, not everybody has the opportunity, but if you have the opportunity to leave your home base and explore other parts of the world, I meet a lot of people here who do that and say, should I go to the, should I go to the States? I live in Spain. Should I go to the States and experience that? My answer to that is always yes. You know, try to get a more global perspective, see things from the outside, try to see things from the other side and see what's available in the world. So for me personally, I think I've been very fortunate to live in a, I've only lived in three different countries, but sometimes that's two more than a lot of other people have lived in. <laughs> so if people have the opportunity to do it, I think it's a, a really good thing to do. And worst case scenario, if it doesn't work out for you or if it, you know, is not negative, you can move on to another place or move back. I mean, there is one place I moved to that I absolutely hate it <laughs> and I don't want to move out. Uh, it was actually in Spain. <laughs> So it's no secret to people who know me. So um, I grew up in New Jersey. I lived in New York. I moved over to London, went up to Cambridge in the UK. And then I came towards the Barcelona area, but I didn't live in Barcelona proper. I lived in a town over a mountain called San Hugat. And that w- that's just too small of a village for me. You know, I used to live in Manhattan and love it. I used to live in London and love it. So it was mm-hmm. too big of a black and white change for me. So I came across the mountain and now I live in Barcelona, the city. And that's much more of my comfort zone. But oh, I mean, cool. on the positive side, it was a year of me not being too happy. But on the positive side, you know, it does make me appreciate where I am now. So I probably appreciate Barcelona a little bit more than I would have otherwise because I got to experience that not so nice thing. And plus, you know, you don't know what you're going to like until you actually experience things. Have you ever been to Sevilla? I have not. I've done a bit of a drive-by. So there's a lot of Oh, my gosh. Really? And you've lived in Spain how many years? Uh, only six, Alex. But I've been to plenty of other places. <laughs> hey, I spent a month in Sevilla. Sevilla is awesome. Did? Oh, well, yeah. I, the reason I ask is my last girlfriend of two and a half years, just before I met my wife, was uh, she's from Sevilla. Her family's from Sevilla, and so I never got to go with her. But um, we'll, we'll probably take a trip with her at some point. I, it's it's amazing. I've seen pictures. I've seen the festivals, and it looks amazing. 
there's a lot of places I still want to see in this world, but fact of the matter is, is, you know, I love my kids, but they slow you down with travel every now and then. So now they're yeah. getting older. Now we can start picking up travel. And plus, um, yeah. I am married to a Spaniard, but he's from the north, so we go in the opposite direction. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's funny, like, I used to live in San Francisco, but I've never been to Alcatraz, you know? It's like all those things that, that, that are right around you that you, you never go to. Exactly, exactly. I used to so, live in Virginia, um, which is a coastal state, and there were kids in my high school. Uh, I lived inland in Luray my senior year, and only two of the students in my senior class had seen the ocean, and they were only wow. you know a, a, like a short drive from the ocean, which I found incredible. Like, how can you live your life and not be curious about the ocean? So wow. while we're on the on the topic, um, what is it that that we should see? Uh, what what is what things? Uh, do you think that people need to see to really understand the world? Because you're both extremely widely traveled, and I'm really curious about your perspective. See, I told you we were going to get off topic. <laughs> Lynette. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the point of the show. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, Alex, I think it's, I think it sums it up. There's one story I have that will probably sum it up. So when I lived in London, uh, my husband got a job opportunity to come to Barcelona and I was pregnant at the time. So I said, no, I'm not moving to a country where I don't know the language to give birth to my first child. So we actually stayed in London, but the person held the job open for a year, which is very generous of them. So after a year, we had to make a decision. Do we move to Barcelona or not? And I was giving up quite a good career that I had in London so we were going back and forth. Should we go? Should we not? We have life pretty good here. We love London. Why would we leave? And then it came down to that one saying where, you know, you, you don't regret the things you do. You regret the things you don't do. Right. So we kind of went along with that and said, you know what, worst case scenario, I'll give up my career. I can, you know, restart it if necessary. It might be a little bit harder to restart it, but I could. And uh, let's just jump over and go do it. And worst case scenario, if we hate it, we move back. And here it is six years later, we haven't moved back. So we kind of look at things that way. So when there is, you know, if you asked me 20 years ago when I graduated college, would I be starting a 3D food printing company? I would think you would be crazy. You know, it just doesn't sound right. But it's just you kind of go with what's presented in front of you and try to influence that. So that's kind of the way we go through things. So are we going to be here in Barcelona forever? Doubtful. You know, this is the longest we've ever stayed in the place. But... For now, with the way my company is and with the stage we're at, and let's face it, Barcelona is not a bad place to be, Alex. It's kind of like where you are. We have palm trees. We have the beach. We have the ocean. We have great food. We have a lot of Michelin-starred chefs, a lot of fresh food. So it's actually it's, it's quite good. But, you know, if an opportunity is presented for us to move somewhere else and explore a different area of the world, would we do it? Most likely. As long as I can continue doing natural machines and uh, bring it with me, I would go. Awesome. And what I think is, is the, the best about – actually, I want to ask you, Alex, real quick. How many countries have you lived in? I've lived in nine countries, and I have been to 66. Uh, Costa Rica was my 66th country, for what it's worth. So wow. Costa Rica is the last new country that I visited. Um, I but I have lived that. in uh, Germany, England, Denmark, Sweden, uh, India, um, U.S., um, and uh, Mexico, and uh, of all those places, I think that I liked living in England the best uh, because wow. I'm a, I really love gardens and I love lushness, and I think that the English have mastered the art of the garden. I can imagine once you and people at Rise uh, have your way and attract other people that 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 Costa Rica will become the new garden state. You know, I'm making a joke about New Jersey, the garden state. Yes, I saw that. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah. Cool. Think, uh, so thank you I, for asking. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I actually didn't know that. I knew you lived in a lot of different places. I didn't know which ones. Um, so you're going to have even a, a better understanding of what – I love that you ask questions about things that you already know about just to get other people's perspective. And so my perspective about traveling and especially about living in other places is that you get perspective, right? Like I had no idea how – different it is to live in other places, uh, you know, grow, growing up and living in the same place my entire life. And then I moved to, you know, living in San Francisco, San Diego, uh, and then moving to the middle of the jungle in Costa Rica, where you need a four-wheel drive 
just to get to my house. The, you know, the nearest, uh, like actual big grocery store is 30 minutes. And that's like a, you know, it'd be like a small store in the U S um, you know, there's the, the cell reception isn't very good. The, you know, the infrastructure isn't very good and it's so peaceful. It's, I feel like Costa Rica is the opposite side of the spec, the success spectrum, right? Like if, if the U S is on one side, specifically, you know, California is on one side of the success spectrum, which equals, you know, uh, physical items that you own and, and like that quality of lifestyle. And then going to the other side, which is Costa Rica, which is Pura Vida, right? Pure life. It's just, it's like, it's the number one happiest country in the world. And so I feel like that perspective, and, and I can't even imagine what it'd be like living in India and, and Germany and all those, those places that, that you've lived in. And Lynette living in uh, London and, and Spain. And that is so cool living in Barcelona. And, and I love that you had the experience of it. Like, I'm glad that you pushed yourself to go to the place where, you know, you didn't like it very much and you stayed there for a year and now, you know, right. But you would never know if you didn't have that experience. Like it's still, it's like reading a book. Every time you read a book, it opens up new, uh, neural pathways in your brain, right. It opens up new experiences. You have new understandings of, of what that specific thing is. And, and I feel like that's what this, this, I like this show for too, is, is I like to open up new experiences and new possibilities for people. So Lynette, I want to thank you so much for, for being on the show. Is there, I want to hear two things from you if, if you have them. Um, the first would be, is there any last thing, like last words you want people to know about the future of 3D food printing? Um, and then the other thing would be, where can people find you or where can people uh, find the food eating? Sure. So final words about 3D food printing is keep an open mind and think about real fresh ingredients because this is real food, 3D print it. So don't go into the roadblock of how 3D printed food will be the only thing you eat in the future because that's not the case. You know, we're based out of Barcelona. We love food as much as the next person and we appreciate a lot of it. It's going to be a major appliance in the future, but it won't be the only one. But it is about real 3D printed food. And as to where to find us, we're on Facebook. We do a lot of updates on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And we also have a holding page website, which is naturalmachines.com. And, uh, yeah, you'll see us quite a bit in the press these days as well. So we're open to any questions or comments or feedback from anyone. We respond to as many people that write to us. We always respond. So we're happy to hear from people. Awesome. I love it. Feel free to tag me in, your, uh, in any of your posts. I'd love to promote and I'd love to uh, get the word out too. I mean, it sounds so excited. And one thing I love is that the price is extremely reasonable. And what I heard at least is it was somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars. That is crazy reasonable for what this is. The, the, the 3d food printer I was talking about earlier, the just prints candy was like uh, five to $10,000 depending on the model. Right. I mean, this is, this is insane. So, yeah, anyway. yeah. So we're definitely going to get to all different types of price points, and I'm sure in 10 to 15 years you'll see prices even lower than that. It's the same concept as flat screen TVs that were once thousands of dollars, and as the technology develops, you can now buy, let's say, a flat screen TV for you know $100. So I think you're going to see that in the future as well. Awesome, awesome. So much, Lynette. Alex, is there any? Uh, do you have any uh, last words? Yes. So our, the goal of the futurist is not just to talk about the future and people who are making the future, but also to say how you can go and help create the future through your purchases. And the more people who buy fresh organic food and prepare it at home, the more people who take their ingredients seriously and just refuse to pay any money at all, not even one penny for things with poisons in the food, even in tiny, tiny doses, the more we create a world economy that doesn't do that. Like if everybody just decided to have the attitude of, of Lynette to say, I'm just going to eat fresh ingredients, I'm going to eat whole food, I'm going to eat mostly plants, do you know how much better the future would be than if we just simply carried on as we're doing now? So this is a microcosm, and yeah, on, the, uh, on one level, we're talking about a product that people may or may not buy, may or may not be interested in, but overall, I love the idea that this show is showcasing to me the people whose ethics 
should form the basis of our future civilization. And food is one of those things that we do every day. And if we do it wrong, we create a world of sugar addicts. Um, I want to just add, too, that it just uh, we have Schedule One drugs, so marijuana, LSD, psilocybin. These are Schedule One drugs. The, F, uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency says they have no medical value. So my question that I've asked recently, and no one can answer, is why isn't sugar on Schedule One? It has no nutritional value. It has no medical value, and it's addictive and it's harmful to people, and it's what feeds cancer. Cancer cells eat 800% more glucose. So overall... That's your answer. That's your answer of why it's not illegal. Why? Because it feeds cancer? <laughs> yeah, because it makes people sick and stupid. <laughs> okay. So that's my, la my, my, my word is that I want a world full of people who think and eat and raise their children like Lynette. So thank you for being our guest, Lynette. We're really happy to have you on, the, on our little show here. Thanks so much, Lynette. Thanks so much, everybody. It's been such a great show. So much fun. See you guys next time. Bye.